Hi, listeners. There are one or two swear words in this episode, so if you are with someone who shouldn't hear that or doesn't want to, you have been warned. I did tell my granddad about Edinburgh. This I went to see him a couple of weekends ago, and it was quite funny. And I was like, you know, I'm going out. You know, for some people, it's, it works out great, and then other people, not for much. Um, probably going to maybe just break even, likely probably going to lose money. And at the end, he was like, why are we asking, Levan? What's the point? What'd you say? I was like, you know, that's a great question, Granddad. And I think I just waffled about, you might make it. Something good might come from it. (laughs) But I just thought he's just asking, he's just saying those things out loud that we're we're all thinking. The only person that's going to realise my potential and that's going to turn my potential into actual impact is me. And there's no time like the present. But I think that's a really key thing to anybody listening who's sort of like, well, you know, she's taken that big risk and I couldn't do that. And the truth is that for a long time, neither could I. And it's okay to wait. There is a right moment, even if it's not driven by ambition. It's just driven by like fucking frustration and annoyance at other people. Like there will come a moment where you feel ready and feel strong enough to go to the next chapter. Every year for three weeks in August, artists from around the world come to Edinburgh, Scotland to prove themselves as actors, comedians, writers, acrobats, street performers, directors, and producers. They come with dreams, ambitions, and hopes that these three weeks will pay off. The blood, sweat, tears, and the money spent will all be worth it. It was an insane amount of risk to the point where all my best friends at that point have this memory of the moment when I told them, hey, I'm going to write this show and I'm going to crowdfund this money and I'm going to take it to Edinburgh Fringe and I'm going to hope that it's going to do well. And all my friends and family have this memory of this moment when I told them I was going to do that and they thought in their own head, some of them said it out loud, some of them didn't, of like, that's crazy. That's nuts. What what are you even doing? How is, what, why? Why are you doing this? For almost a year, I have been working on this story. We have explored the complexity, balance, cost, gamble, ambition, joy, and the risk involved in putting on the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the third most ticketed event in the world. But with The Fringe, the story doesn't end at the last curtain call. Where does it leave artists in terms of their work, bank accounts, and their health? How do you celebrate and justify one of the most draining months of your life and the months leading up to it? When it came to putting together this last episode, in some ways, it was the hardest. Because if there's one thing we have learned, The Fringe is not easy. And that includes trying to conclude a story about it. In our last episode, we talked to Hannah and Neve as they reflect on their Fringe experience. We also explore the repercussions of a changing world on The Fringe, a festival whose origin came from the need for art in a world that was rebuilding after a world war. I'm Molly Merwin, and this is Fringe Benefits Edinburgh, a story of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I feel quite burnt out, if I'm being real. Just talking to my therapist, I've been prescribed not doing anything for the next two weeks. I'm doing too many things. Let's genuinely just have that conversation. I'm talking to Neve Denier a month and a half after the end of her fringe run of her show, Get Blessed. It's been about two months since I last spoke to her. 
going to Fringe. I've just been on adrenaline for like most of this year. And then when I came back from Fringe, I moved house that month, along with going back to my full-time job the day after I returned back from Fringe. So it's been like a crazy year. So I feel like I don't have anything left to give to 2023. And I'm like very ready for it to be Christmas and just go home for a week and then start afresh in the new year. That's kind of how I feel. But in terms of Fringe, I had an amazing time and in lots of ways, yeah, it went really well. So I feel really happy about that. As you know, Neve was really apprehensive about going to the Fringe in the first place. I never wanted to do the Fringe. I thought it's terrifying. And I saw so many of my friends go up there and just get really burnt out. And my husband actually went last year and he had a great time overall. But yeah, you can just see how challenging it is to go and kind of keep your head above water for the whole month. And also the the lead up to it as well. It's very intense, just the amount of things that you have to do especially if you're also working which obviously a lot of artists also have other jobs so it's like very challenging but when we last left Neve midway through the fringe she had been surprised about how much she was enjoying it when you come as an audience member and you just drop in for a couple of days it is a very overwhelming place mm-hmm. and that's all I'd ever done so that was yeah. the impression that I got but I think once you're here with your own show you build your own routine and it kind of becomes like a bubble on your own world for a month so it's actually a lot easier than I was expecting in that way and also I don't get to perform that much when I'm in my normal life as much as I'd like to be doing it all the time. So to wake up every day and do what you love is pretty amazing. And when I spoke to her in the middle of October, she was saying a lot of the same things. The first week I took off and I just remember waking up every day and being like, what I have to do today is my show. That's amazing. I don't have to do any of these other things. I think it reminded me a bit of being at drama school, which you can relate to. Same drama school. Because I went to drama school a little bit later. I mean, I was 27, so not that late, but I'd already been out in the world for a bit after university and stuff. I was so grateful to be there. And like every day I was like so happy to be at drama school because I understood what it was to be like, you know, in the real world. And I never took it really for granted. And I felt like that in Edinburgh. It's like so cool. Like I wake up every day and I get to go do my show and people come see my show and people who I don't know come and see my show and seem to be enjoying the show. And I, I was pretty good at looking after myself too. Like I didn't go out too much. I didn't like overindulge in alcohol or anything that much. I, I was very focused on the show really. Neve said having her husband there was a massive help. Just to have someone for emotional support who had done the fringe before. It helped not feeling so isolated. And when it came to the audience and her show, big thing for me was just that like people found it uh, funny outside of my friends which I think is probably more of an ego thing but it's nice to know that people get the show and get what you were trying to do I had some mixed reviews as well but I had one review that just really got the whole show and what I was trying to do and it, it just it feels when you've worked on something that hard for people to get it it's like really satisfying and I think it gave me a lot of confidence I feel like I grew as a performer massively during it it's so valuable to me yeah, would it be great to have had a West End transfer out of it? Obviously. Was that likely to happen? Probably not. <laughs> but I haven't really thought about it in those terms at all. I'm really happy with how it went and what happened from it so far. After the Fringe, Get Blessed had been chosen to be a part of the Pleasant's Best of Edinburgh series in London. Neve also had an audio production company approach her about adapting her show, and another company had talked to her about filming it professionally and putting it on a digital platform. But yeah, some stuff's happened out of it that is more than I probably would have expected, ultimately. When I last saw Neve at the Fringe, she said she wanted to do it again. And I was wondering if anything had changed in the last two months. When I first came back, I was like, I want to go back next year, 100%. Did I have any ideas? No. Do I have any ideas yet? Not really. But I was like, I'm determined I want to go back. But then now I'm back and the dots are settled. 
I don't think it's probably realistic for me to go next year, in all honesty. I think it will be something I'll do again, though. I think given now what I know about how much advanced preparation and that you need to start planning in January or February, March, I just don't think I have it within me to do that next year. At the moment, I want to focus on other things. I want to focus on replenishing my ideas. And if I'm hit by some inspiration, never say never. But right now, I feel like I won't be going by next year. A few days after our interview, it hit me. I forgot to ask her how her show worked out financially. And when I was putting this episode together, I realized it was because for Neve, the festival wasn't about a financial bottom line. It was an artistic exercise, an investment in herself, in her art. When I asked her via email, she said, quote, I defo lost money, but haven't calculated the final amount. Denial. Let's drive back in London today after being in Scotland and my Wi-Fi is just not playing ball yet after we plugging it in. So oh, no. it's just coming to you from my phone. Okay, today. no worries. Hannah was talking to me from her garden at the beginning of October 2023 before box office sales were settled. She took off September to spend time with her grandmother and take a break after the fringe. Recovering and starting to reflect on what a month it was and, and the things that went well and the things that didn't go well. And we're at the stage now where we're getting communications from different venues about box office settlements. We've not got box office settlements, full ones from anyone yet. And I'm doing, I'm going back and putting every, all the details into all the budgets for reporting, going back to different funders and um, investors and donors. And we've built the draft of the tour packs and um, whether or not the shows that we worked on are continuing to work with us or not. We made sure that everybody got a tour pack that they could move forward with for the future of the show. Think of a tour pack as a sales and travel kit for a theater show, packed with all the instructions and details needed to set it up perfectly, no matter where it goes. And so we're continuing to work on the ones that we will be taking forward um, with the tour packs and starting conversations with venues and organizations that might be interested in the work in London and, and touring and stuff like that. You'll remember, after years of working for others, Hannah had finally made her dream of starting her own production company a reality with her company Thistle and Rose Arts. I sat on this idea of being a commercial producer and all the stories I wanted to champion and all of the things I knew I was capable of doing. But I knew that I would have to take a big risk in order to do it. Like until I committed to somebody to raise the money and to just make it happen somehow without knowing how I was going to make it happen, nothing was going to go anywhere. After a viral tweet un unexpectedly led to conversations with several artists, Hannah decided to work with five productions and launched her first program of work at the 2023 Fringe. However, each production had the same problem, cost. And when everyone was giving her the same advice, don't get involved in the fundraising. It's too much risk for you. You go back to them, give them your flat fee to produce something and you can do the fringe and then get out again. But you know, you leave the fundraising to them. It didn't sit right with her. So Hannah made a bold and risky decision. I went back to the five artists. I said, I will produce your show and I will raise the money for your show to make it happen. And I will charge a producing fee out of the money that I raise. If I don't raise the money, you don't pay me. Since then, Hannah had been spending her time on general producing duties, liaising with venues, setting up budgets, working with PR and marketing, and raising money. But after bidding for investors with fundraising galas and in-person meetings with high-profile theater people, scrambling to get the money back from a fraudulent bank transfer, and guiding five shows through the fringe, in the end, Hannah was never able to raise the £100,000 minimum for all five of the productions she was working with. We talked to a lot of people about perspective, because obviously this project, we had this huge fundraising goal. In the end, we raised the total, almost entirely cash total, but a little bit in value as well, of 55 k which is extraordinary 
when you look at it as an achievement in itself, it's not anywhere near what we needed to raise at the start. And so as a result for the shows to go ahead, you know, we had conversations with each of the artists and said, this is exactly where we're at. And different artists, different stakeholders within the show said, okay, in order for it to still go on, we're going to do X, Y, Z. So funded this way, that way. So I think it's a matter of perspective and from a sort of, for me as a company director and entrepreneur, it's an interesting mindset thing to grapple with. There's a lens through which you can view the whole thing as a massive achievement. There's also a lens through which you can view it as a big exercise in over-promising and under-delivering. I'm sitting with all of that and acknowledging everything. But 55K that five companies didn't have before in order to take their play is a brilliant achievement in itself. Raising 55,000 pounds is an achievement, even if it wasn't the complete achievement she was hoping for. While Hannah's company may have struggled to make up the numbers, the productions she was associated with did have a wide range of well-received shows. We had at least one five-star review for all the shows. Sorry, maybe four of the shows. I think one got a 4.5 star, 0.5 stars. Who does 0.5? Anyway, so yeah, great critical reception for the shows two or three of them sold really well better than expected and got brilliant audience reviews so on the Ed Fringe website people can go and leave a review as an audience member for a show they've seen and sometimes even if a show doesn't do very well with the kind of art critics it can still do really well with the audience reviews and that sort of helps word of mouth that's also the kind of arsenal that you can take forward and include in the tour pack or just so show to other venues organizations that look the audience love the show in this place your audience are going to love it too. And it's slightly different from The Guardian really liked it because they're like, that's The Guardian, but is it going to sell tickets? So that's really strong collateral to have moving forward. She also had conversations with people she met through The Fringe or online who are looking for a producer for Fringe 2024 or other things. My underlying goal of launching the company with a program of work and, and showcasing our values and our skills has absolutely done its job, which is great. But being more forensic, as she put it, about where things could be improved, it would have been expectations set between she and the artists she was working with. One particular show had a venue that now, as she looks back, was too large. No, we wouldn't necessarily have known that before because there were indicators to suggest that show should have sold much better than it did. But what it meant was more promotion was needed. A lot of flyering was needed. According to Hannah, the artist didn't flyer nearly enough, which the artist disagreed with. And that lack of flyering impacted sales. And so that kind of comes back to contracting and agreements and laying out of terms and just being really forensic in the lead up. If it goes well, this is what will happen. But if it doesn't go well, this is where the liability lies. This is what's expected of each party. This is the minimum that's expected for this. And for example, setting a minimum flyering expectation will be really clear about what's necessary in order to sell a show. So I think those are the top two is maybe being a bit more shrewd in the future about, yes, giving us a show the space to grow into a larger space, but not one that playing smaller is maybe wiser, depending on the show. That being said, she had one show that was brand new and a 227 seater first time at the Fringe and had only done organic marketing, which sold really well and had one sold out show in the middle of their run. You can never know, but I think, yeah, core lessons would be make sure that everything's in writing and going through all the worst case scenarios as well as the best case scenarios. I thought this was a core lesson for anyone to learn. As artists, we get caught up in the idea, the dream, what it could be and what it might be down the line. We sometimes forget that it could go wrong. It could go bad. Then how do we go from there? What are the expectations? It's like marriage. You never get married thinking you'll get divorced, but it happens. The statistics on that are for another podcast. 
So having a good prenup helps, or in this case, putting everything in writing protects everyone and the work. And lots of people will understand this and relate to this, but as stress levels increase, it becomes more difficult to find and trust your instinct because you start, it's not as easy to think into that thing of, okay, where is the, what's the right next move? Like, where is the knowing? If you're constantly high on cortisol, it becomes more difficult to find that right move and you make decisions that when you look back on, you think, I maybe would have made different choices. So I think managing, yeah, managing my own stress levels so I can make the right kind of gut calls is really important for the future. I asked her how she thinks she would be able to manage stress levels in the future. She told me as far as being on the ground, a bigger team might have helped, though they didn't have the funds. The thing is, even if you are, even if you're not working from the minute you wake up to you and you go to bed at the fringe, there's just always somewhere else that you could be. There's always something else that you could be attending. There's always another show that you could see. It's incredibly difficult to manage your energy healthily during in that environment. And that's not news to me either. So yeah, I still haven't figured out how to have a less stressful fringe. But I will report back when I do. <laughs> if anyone does. No. I asked her if she would ever work with this many productions again at the fringe. I might, not to say no in the future, but never again with such a small team. When thinking about if she would go back for 2024, Hannah told me she was still debating. One thing she would have changed about this year is starting earlier, though there was really nothing she could have done differently for the 2023 Fringe to start earlier. So keeping that in mind, she's not sure. Because again, it's now October when I'm speaking to her and she would have to start fundraising soon. There are so many things I would do differently while still acknowledging that we did bring a lot of value to what we did this time. So if you could talk to March, Hannah, what would you tell her? I would tell her that the positive attitude and the optimism she has is essential to making this work. But you have to balance that with a willingness to look at the worst case scenario and also a willingness to say the uncomfortable things. It sounds like good advice for anyone doing this kind of work. If you don't have sheer optimism, the realities of the fringe will drown you. But also balance it with the willingness to say uncomfortable things is essential. So while Hannah didn't make the financial goals, she did launch her company and the productions she was in association with did have critical success, but she's mentally and physically exhausted. I have a great appreciation and love for the fringe and what it can do. And every single time I've done the fringe, it's been a different experience. Like it's, I've learned something different or I've worked in a different role or a different capacity. And there wasn't a person on this planet that didn't think that kind of undertaking this project and all of these shows wasn't a huge undertaking and a huge risk. And if I had the choice, I wouldn't go back and not do it. But yeah, it's, yeah, I'm still recovering, still processing and I don't know whether we'll be back at the fringe with a program in 24 or whether we might leave it till 25 and take a slower approach for the next financial year. So if she didn't do the fringe as a producer, what would she do? I would probably still spend some time up there in a professional capacity, either seeing new work, networking, actually experiencing the fringe. I mean, for the whole time I was there, all I did was work. I saw a total of five or six shows for the whole month but very few shows and not all of those were ones that I kind of chosen to see like shows that I went to see because we or I had an existing relationship or was in conversation with somebody else that was involved in the show so what I mean is it was work instead of pleasure first and foremost so yeah I'd probably do a bit of that I might I don't know I might try having a summer holiday next summer who knows that could be a novel concept so both Hannah and Neve will unlikely do Fringe in a producing or performing capacity in 2024, but another Fringe is likely in their future. After the break and the final act of Fringe Benefits Edinburgh, we reflect on the dreams, costs, benefits, and realities of the Fringe.
What makes a show or for you a festival a success? I think having great shows is kind of the priority, but I think people having a good time is also really important. Maybe not a subject I should raise or any, but I've always think many of the greatest festivals have been ones where there's been the most gossip. We used to run a thing called a scandal book in the assembly rooms in the old days, and people used to write down in it naughty things that went on. And certainly the best festivals were often those where people really got carried away. <laughs> so I think at the point that great work goes alongside people having a good time, whether that's people that are working on the festival or the public, I think that kind of is what makes the event. Do you remember any juicy, naughty things written down in the book? Probably not that I can repeat. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that was William Burdick Coots of Assembly Festival, and I spoke to him a few weeks after Fringe 2023. I never did get that juicy goss, by the way. If you ask what makes a successful Fringe to every performer, venue director, producer, punter, or resident, you would get a different answer each time because each person's reason for being there is unique. But it's hard to enjoy yourself sometimes when the financial burdens keep stacking up. I just think it's important that people will be able to continue to be able to do it. I think in making sure that we can actually make the structure of it work in such a way that it sustains itself is crucial. I think that underneath it all, fundamentally getting the economy to work is the key bit of it. Because if we can't get it to add up, then it won't carry on. And I think getting people to understand that is really important. I think so many people do it for the sake of, oh, I want to do this thing that everyone else has done. I want to go do a show. And they don't think it all the way through. They don't think about their mental health. They don't think about their financial health. And they end up in debt from it or they end up burnt out from it. I'm Christina Murdoch, and I am the creator of Dangerous Giant Animals, which is a solo theater show. It is possible for it to be a positive, generative process. But I do think it's getting harder and harder because the cost of living crisis and the cost of just putting a show up and the funding for the arts in general is drying up. So the challenges are, are mounting up. As we explored in episode two, the financial challenges of the fringe are complicated and mounting. Here is more from Neve during our conversation after the fringe. I think I've mentioned in previous interviews that I booked an acting job that basically allowed me to go, which I don't think if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to go. So if I hadn't worked full time work when I was there, and those aren't always that are options available to everyone. But I do think people are very resilient and adapting and trying their best despite the difficult circumstances around it. And I like to think as much as possible, people will continue to try to go there and make it work. But I don't know. And all of those big questions are, it's a bit like global warming or any of these things. It's like a lot of that stuff sits with a much bigger thing like rent increases and government and the venues and so much more than just an individual. But I'd like to think that there is a way for it to work for everyone. Lindsay Jackson from the Fringe Society. I think it can't be said often enough that I don't think a lot of people understand that most of the risk of a Fringe show is taken by the artist. Venues and producers and promoters in the Fringe Society, we're all doing our bit and we're all taking our own risks. But ultimately, very few of our artists are funded. So they're building the money to bring their work here. Most of them, I assume, see it as an investment. I'm going to invest this money now in my career, which will grow and I will maximize that opportunity. Here's Hannah speaking from episode three. It is frustrating that the price sometimes of getting in the room with the people that you really need to speak to is taking extraordinary risk of like bankrupting yourself and everybody else in order to do that. And that's a rule of business and everything. And I understand that. But it's been interesting to be in so many rooms talking about the fringe as a whole and how much income the city makes and how much so many people benefit from having that world's largest art festival in the city. 
the actual fact that there are shows around which to build an arts festival is often built on the backs of a lot of people that are not getting paid or have taken really extraordinary personal risks in order to to be there. So you start to wonder, like, what actually is the bedrock of that event? And the bedrock is individual artists and their savings accounts and their mums giving them a loan and and then people like me who are sort of out there hustling to get people to listen. Because the fact is, whenever people do sit down and they hear about the products that we have and they look at the details, they're in. But the mounting costs and the changing way people find entertainment in a post-pandemic world, many people are evaluating if the fringe is worth the risk. Tommy Shepard, member of parliament for Edinburgh East and former owner and director of the Stand Comedy Club. I think in recent years, that's the cost benefit of that has changed slightly, perhaps because of the growth of the internet, change of leisure patterns, and the way in which the industry works. The, you know, the model of going to Edinburgh for a month and getting discovered and then getting a TV show next, that doesn't really work anymore. The whole scene has become much more crowded, much more competitive, and there are much many different avenues to develop your career. Just that we need to be aware that's changed. And we also need to be aware that it's never really been completely fair because we don't live in a fair world. There's a lot of inequality here, particularly economic inequality, and that cuts through to the Edinburgh Festival the same as it does to anything else. And if anything, those in charge of the festival and those who put, you know, put public support into the festival ought to be doing that on the basis of trying to create opportunities or remove barriers that exist in the, the economic sphere. As we explored in episode two, rising costs, most notably accommodation, are starting to price artists out. So I think everybody in Edinburgh absolutely understand that there is a, a real problem in the oversaturation of people gobbling up property and turning it into really lucrative businesses. So that has to be solved. My name is Anthony Alderson. I am the director of the Pleasant Theatre Trust, which means running a venue at the Edinburgh Fringe. As the city of Edinburgh tries to balance the needs of its residents and the millions of visitors that bring revenue to the city each year, legislation has been introduced to try to tackle the rising accommodation costs. But the potential knock-on effect will limit accommodation for festival performers and punters city that didn't have enough accommodation anyway has suddenly got even less. Worse, it'll make it more elitist, if anything, because it will push the price of accommodation so high that only certain people will be able to afford to come. And the people who won't be able to afford to come, the performers. If the performers stop coming, very quickly the festival will fall to pieces because that ecosystem is so finely balanced financially. And it is that sharing of resource between people, between venues, between landlords, between the university, and nobody taking too much. That's the only way it can exist. And if one of these things changes, and if you've got the administration of the council who are forcing this great big change coming forward, well, then the whole thing will collapse. The trouble is, once it's gone, it's gone. Can't just rebuild these things from scratch. It never happens like that. The Pleasance is a little venue. It's a collection of little rooms, 50 seated. It's taken us 39 years to get it to where we are now. We couldn't have done it from a standing start. And it will collapse if we're not careful. So I think everybody has sympathy for the problem. But I think that the legislation that everybody's looking at isn't actually taking into account half of the problem. The legislation is confusing and costly for potential hosts. As of the writing of this episode, the legislation is still in limbo with city council members and members of parliament on all sides trying to find a solution. You can't measure these things just by economic. It's about well-being. It's about the art that we bring to the world. This is the greatest expression of freedom of speech anywhere on the planet. 
there is so much about that festival to celebrate in terms of how to build society, how to run a community, how to grow communities, how to have conversation, difficult conversations about our society. According to a study published in 2021 by the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology, watching theater improves empathy, changes attitudes, and improves social behavior. The researchers studied 1,622 participants across three field studies. After watching plays, individuals reported increased empathy for groups depicted in the shows, aligned their opinions more with sociopolitical issues raised in the productions, and donated more money to both related and unrelated charities. This research indicates that the theater serves as more than just entertainment. It promotes meaningful boosts in empathy and humanitarian actions, and thus contributes more than we recognize to society. And then to remind you from episode one, a study published in 2023 found that all the August festivals combined create 500 million pounds for the Edinburgh economy, supporting 8,000 jobs with a 33 pound return for every one pound of public money spent. In 2011, a similar study was published and it found that all the festivals generated over 261 million pounds of additional tourism revenue for Scotland in 2010. So in just over a decade, the festivals have almost doubled what they bring to the economy. And in that study, they found the Fringe alone contributed 142 million pounds of this in 2010. That's 58%. So keeping these two studies in mind, the economic benefit the Fringe and other festivals bring to the economy and the social impact of theater, if the Fringe and other festivals leave Edinburgh or shrink in scale, what does that mean not only for Edinburgh's, Scotland's and the UK's economy, but society as a whole? The Fringe is messy. It's complicated. It's flawed. But it also brings people together to experience something unique. It makes people feel seen. It launches careers. It establishes careers. It starts conversations. It brought a six the musical, Fleabad, Stomp the musical, Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson, and many, many others. It brings huge economic benefits to Edinburgh, Scotland, and the UK. Here's Lindsay Jackson again from the Fringe Society. Actually, the Fringe is an enormous contributor to the cultural ecology of the UK and actually the globe. So it's not perfect, but you can come and you can change things within it that you don't like and you can contribute meaningfully. For William Burdick Coots from Assembly, it's about finding solutions. After Assembly picked up 1.9 million pounds in debt to get through COVID, he says the organizations that run Fringe didn't spend enough time working together during COVID to come up with a strategy that worked. Trying to learn from that mistake, starting in 2022, some of the organizations are talking more and working together. We created something this year called the Fringe Alliance, which is uh, basically the kind of core venues that operate at the festival, but we've also opened it up to performers and producers that want to be part of it. We created something during the COVID time called EdFest. So there were eight of us that started talking, thinking about how we could work together and help each other basically through COVID because it was a very tough time. Uh, and we're just basically extending that further now into more people. It does mean there's a lot more talking going on. And I think a, a lot more people trying to work together to make sure that we make this great event continue. So we are addressing the issues that we all face and trying to provide a more coherent relationship between us and the Fringe Society and those outside as well. I think obviously there's a big elephant in the room, which is that there was a global pandemic which cancelled Fringe one year completely for the first time since it started. 
My name is Sam Irving, creative director and performer, Spontaneous Potter, the improvised Harry Potter parody. And I've been doing the Fringe for 14 years. This year was probably the first year it felt like the Fringe again. And maybe I'm being pessimistic and maybe people will, who weren't there this year and last year, will be back next year in full force. But it does feel like for a lot of people, it's no longer the must-do thing in August. I just think it used to be the the event that everyone in the creative community looked forward to for the year. And I, I just don't think it is anymore. I know there's a lot of people working towards trying to stop losing that momentum. A lot of the people running for the Fringe Society board this year were campaigning on a platform of making it more accessible, m making sure that it was affordable. Because I think for a lot of punters, they don't necessarily even notice the scale of the prices going up because they're only coming for a couple of nights and it's not that much more than a hotel room. But if you need to pay for that for a cast of 10 for a month, you could buy a house for the yeah. price. But there's wheels in motion, which hopefully should stop it getting to a point where it falls, collapses in on itself. And I would be very sad if it did get to that point. Character comedy turning death into a living, one o'clock, four stars. Okay, thank you. What advice would you give someone who's never done Fringe before now that you've done it? Think that you're going to have a terrible time. And then when you get there, it's going to be great. <laughs> it's really good advice, honestly. No, that's obviously slightly joking. But I think having a very realistic outlook on it is really helpful. Because then when you go, everything's just better. But that's not the best way to live your life. But that did work in this instance for me. I will also say, take the whole month off there. Do not work from home. Not think that you can do your day job when you're there. It's very difficult mentally. And try whatever way you have to do it to get that whole month off. Because if I did it again, there's no way I would just work when I'm there. I think doing the show and flyering every day and all the things that are connected to the show was the most draining. But... Having to work two days out of that week was just too much to do on top of working as a performer there. And I remember the first day that I had to log on and stuff, it just felt like wrong. I was just like, I'm not in the right mindset to get into work mode right now as much as I tried my hardest when I was there. Obviously, I have a very understanding manager, but I would definitely advise if you're going. And I understand financially, it's just impossible for people. But if you can try and... If you're performing or producing or something that's very slow on when you're there, like just be that the thing you're doing and try and find a way to make that work for yourself. I don't think this is fringe specific. I think this might be for life, but ask for help and hold on to each other 100%. I still think that isolation is the death knell of something like the fringe because whatever your journey and whatever the size of your production and the complexity of it, whether it's new or whether it's well-trodden or what venue you're in, or if you've done things before, if you have it, whatever it is, nothing else can replace having people to, to lean on, having people to share stories with, having people to commiserate with and celebrate with and to ask questions. Um, and I think don't underestimate if you ask people for help, what they might come back with, because you never know until people can't help you to achieve your goal or your dream unless you tell them what it is and tell them what you need. So I think that's really important hold on to your peeps. That was Neve and Hannah's advice after the 2023 Fringe. Despite the challenges, thousands of artists will be heading to the Fringe again this year with hopes, dreams, and ambitions as they have since 1947. 
The 2024 Fringe registration opened the week before this episode released. Some artists have already locked in their venues. Others are filling out their applications. So if you are one of those artists thinking of going in 2024 or any year to come, or you are a punter thinking of discovering your next favorite show, here's some more advice from venue directors, organizers, and performers. First up, Sam Goff from Summer Hall. Number one Fringe advice ever is don't be a dick if you live by that mantra and know know your show well enough then Edinburgh Fringe is a breeze. William Burdick Coots from Assembly. You've got to really have a reason to come and whether that's a punter just someone to have a good time or whether it's a performer you need to think about what your reason for being there is and then fulfill it. Anthony Alderson from The Pleasance. Know what you want at the end. What do you want your investment to return? And then it's not a waste of money. Here's Alex Petty from Free Fringe and Laughing Horse. As a performer, go with realistic expectations. Put as much work as you can into the show. Put on a good show and everything else will come to you. And for audiences, seek out the the shows that have got interesting titles, weird setups, strange venues and everything you can only see at the Fringe. Lindsay Jackson from The Fringe Society. For both audiences and artists, see as much work as you possibly can afford to. And finally, Sam Irving from Spontaneous Potter and 14-year Fringe veteran. Take a chance on shows as a punter. Don't just go and see things you know. You might find your new favorite act. And also just enjoy the city. It's easy to forget that there's actually a whole beautiful cultural city. And I think for acts, give yourself a bit of time, a bit of headspace. It's easy to get swept away with it. Take some downtime. All the things you can forget to do when you're having fun, because it is fun. And I do love it still. And I, and I hope it continues to be as enjoyable as it's been. So as a performer, if someone had never heard of it or never been, how would you describe Fringe? Chaotic, fun, ride of a roller coaster trapped in a bubble where everyone's doing the same thing. (laughs) I did say a few times to people, it's like an artist's utopia in a way, because so many like-minded people there, most people, like loads of people there are artists and you just feel very like you're with your people, you know? They understand and they take you seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think you don't always feel that sometimes as an artist in the real world. And you definitely get that sense of belonging, waking up every day and going to do your show and meeting like-minded people in your venue and then flyering with people that you meet randomly and then going to see shows in the evening. Like it just feels like a very lovely space to be in, you know? I do know. Many times as an artist, whether a visual artist, performance artist, writer, musician, or any kind of artist, the work is so intangible. People see actors on red carpets or directors being interviewed and they think of the glamour. They don't think of the years of training, hundreds or even thousands of auditions, or bit parts where no one noticed that actor had to do. They don't think of the rejected films or financially unsuccessful plays the director had to do in order to get their break. People don't see the countless open mics where there were only three people in the audience before the comic could do a show to 300. They don't see the countless rejected scripts a writer deals with. They don't see the paintings or drawings no one bought or even looked at before an artist sells their first piece. Some people just see a lake and not the depths below. Is there anything I've missed or you wish I asked you or you just want to say upon reflection of Fringe and about the experience? 
if you're on the fence about going like I was, and I'm not saying it's all roses and it depends on loads of factors what your experience is going to be there. But I would say don't let the fear of the unknown stop you from going because I definitely put it off or didn't really want to go for like quite a few years because it just seemed like really overwhelming to me. It's quite a huge tick the box to have brought a show there. And I think if that's something that you're even slightly considering, do you really put some serious thought behind it and, and maybe just do the thing that scares you because that's kind of how I felt doing it and it's really easy to just say oh not this year not this year but like just do it just do it I mean I'm making it sound so easy I understand that there's so many other factors in a simple perfect world just do it I know financially and everything but you can't make it work if you want to you'll find a way this has been a story of dreams ambitions and reality colliding in a city thousands of years old this has been Fringe Benefits Edinburgh a story of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. This is the last regular episode in this series. I had countless hours of interviews with incredible insight. So in the coming weeks, look out for bonus episodes. Make sure you are subscribed or follow so you know when they come out. A huge, huge thank you to Neve Denyer and Hannah Crawford for letting me follow them in the months leading up to the Fringe, during the Fringe, and afterwards. I know sometimes it may have been difficult and they were exhausted, and I really appreciate them. They are the heart and soul of this series. I also wanna thank every single person who sat down with me for interviews. Those people are, in no particular order, Christina Murdoch, writer and performer, Daisy Earl, stand-up comedian, Sam Irving, performer, Anthony Alderson from The Pleasants, Sam Goff from Summerhall, Alex Petty from Free Fringe and Laughing Horse, William Burdick Coots from Assembly, Sarah Vigies from Nouveau Riche, Aaron Simmons, stand-up comedian, Lindsay Jackson from The Fringe Society, Cammie Day, Edinburgh City Council leader, Camille Hainsworth, performer, Zachary Willis, performer, Adrian, whom I did not get his last name, but he's a resident in Edinburgh. Thank you, Adrian. And Tommy Shepard, NP. Fringe Benefits Edinburgh was produced, written, edited, and hosted by me, Molly Merwin. Script consultant was Tom Noonan. A huge thank you to Tom. The series would not be where it is without you. Thank you to Colette Jonas for original music. And as ever, thank you so much to my supporting producer, Alex Merwin. If you enjoyed this series, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>